Let us continue to build our life on the foundation of faith in you, Lord Jesus, and on the foundation of your word. God, let us build our lives. Let us continue to build our lives on the foundation of your word. And Lord, we know when our foundation is solid, when the rain comes and the storms of life come, we will not be shaken. Because Jesus, you are Lord, and you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and your word doesn't change. So Lord, we love you, and we praise you, and we magnify you, God. And Lord, as we look at your authority this morning, Lord, speak through your word. Teach us this morning so that our lives rest in who you are and in your authority that we're going to see. Lord, we love you and praise you. First in Jesus' mighty name I pray. All God's people said, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. You know, I, uh, I became a Christian in 1992. So I'm celebrating 30 years here of my spiritual life in Christ. And let me just tell you something. Each year gets better and better with Jesus. Amen? Amen. He, he doesn't get old. It's, it's not a, this, this religion, of the, the religion of Christianity, our faith in Christ, it never gets old. He gets better and better every year, and I just get blown away. I still have my zeal. I still have my passion from 1992, and I'm very thankful for that. And my prayer, my prayer for you guys is that you have that same zeal, that you have that same passion to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we have to get into the Word and let the Holy Spirit bring the Word to life. Let it jump out of the pages and into our hearts and catch that zeal, catch that passion for serving Christ. So please turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, Calvary Chapel style, we're studying chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, but I want to open it up with reading verses 1 through 7 to get our minds oriented in the direction that God's Word has taken us this morning. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 says, Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were all struck, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. Uh, Our hearts are open, our ears are listening, Lord, and Help us to start off 2023 with a word in our hearts that comes from your word, that comes from your truth, that we can ponder on, think on this week. And Lord, I pray that you just use this word to bless us, Father. First, in Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen. Amen. The title of my message this morning is All Authority. All Authority. What, what, what comes to your mind when you hear the word all authority? 
You know, you think about someone in charge, someone who's in control, someone who is supreme above all. And what we need to understand is that is exactly who Jesus is. He is the supreme, authoritative ruler, king, and God of this universe. And he rules and he reigns. And I can't think of a greater message to start the new year off with than Jesus all authority. He has all authority. Merriam's dictionary says this when it comes to the word authority. It says, it is the power or right to give orders. It's the power or right to make decisions, to be in charge, to have complete power and control. Jesus Christ has absolute authority over the physical world, over the spiritual world, and over all people. Okay? He rules, he reigns. Now the thing when it comes to people is they got to be willing to submit. They got to say uncle. They got to surrender to his authority. But he rules and reigns over all the world. And he does as he wills and as he pleases. And he doesn't need man's permission. Because he rules and he reigns. And in our text this morning, Jesus is going to exercise authority in so many different areas. Keep that word authority in your mind as we go through the text. Because you're going to see the word authority. But what I want you to see as we go through the passage is you see his authority over. And he's going to have authority to forgive sin. He's going to have authority to see through the heart of every man. He's going to have authority to heal diseases. He's going to have authority to call disciples to follow him. And this is the big one. Jesus, now, all we've ever known in our life is Christianity, okay? But in the first century, this was huge. And that's how we're going to end these verses in the last few verses between verses 15 and 17. Jesus has all authority to bring in a new system, a new and better way. See, when Jesus is on earth, it was the system of Judaism, of the Old Testament, the, the temple sacrifices. And Christ is going to show us in this text that there's a new and better way coming. And the old way is going to pass away, and the new covenant is going to come into effect. So y'all ready to dive into it? Let's, let's see what the Word of God teaches us this morning in our Bible study. Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 it says, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. Now, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, we studied Jesus going to the Gadarenes. Remember what he encountered at the Gadarenes? He encountered the two demon-possessed men. And I spent a whole Sunday morning teaching on the characteristics of demon possession. And so Jesus goes over there and he sets these two men free from demonic possession. Okay, so now he's left there. He's traveled back across the Sea of Galilee, going north, and he's come back to Capernaum. Capernaum is the city that's referred to at the end of the verse. He came to his own city. It seems as though Jesus, in his early ministry, he set up at Capernaum for to be the headquarters of his ministry. And if you, if you know anything about history, Capernaum was a mixed bag of people. There were Jews, there were Gentiles, there were Rome, there was, everything was there. So he's there at Capernaum doing his initial outreach, calling disciples to follow him. This is where he he picks up Matthew and many of the other disciples. Verse 2, it says, They brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, 
If you go over to the Gospel of Mark and Luke, they complete the picture of what is happening. As we go through these Gospels, and we're going to see this over the next couple of weeks, I'm, we're going to study the text of the book we're in, but I'm also going to refer to the other Gospels because it gives us the complete picture. You have to put them all together. But what's going on here when you put all three of the accounts together is Jesus is teaching in the home of Peter. And it is a packed house, standing room only. Because, and because they were unable to get to Jesus, four men come to the meeting. They can't get through the door where the man is paralyzed. So what do they do? They, say, they go through the roof. They say, we're going to find, we're going to get to Jesus. So they go up on top of the roof. They dig through the roof and they lower the paralytic right to where Jesus is preaching in the home. They want their friend healed. And they understand the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. They see where the source is. They see where the power is. And so they're, they're, they're thinking to themselves, we are going to get him to Jesus. Because we, goes, no, we know Jesus can heal him. What's interesting in verse 2, if you take a look at the verse, the, just the observation here is, Jesus does not respond to the faith of the paralytic. I find that interesting. Look at the verse. He, 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 um, but he responds to the faith of those men that were carrying the paralytic. So it's not the paralytic's faith. It's the men that are carrying him. And as I was pondering that thought this week of, of this situation at Capernaum where this guy is lowered through the roof we don't know if he has faith or not, but the men carrying him has faith. You know, I couldn't help but to think of how many times we have to have faith for our friends. How many times that we have to have faith for other people. I think that's pretty cool. You know, in many cases, it is because of someone else's faith and prayers that you came to faith in Christ. Somebody was praying for you. Somebody was interceding for you. Somebody was calling upon the name of the Lord, saying, God, please save Jay. Please save David. I remember who it was for me. It was my grandmother on her knees praying for this little wretched sinner, praying that he would get saved, praying that he would turn his life around. And in 1992, she got that phone call. Grandma, I gave my life to Christ. Boy, was she celebrating. Boy, was she joyful. You know, but it was, it was her calling upon the Lord. Her saying, God, please save David. Please rescue him before he, he wrecks his life and makes it any worse. But sometimes, as we see in Scripture right here, we have to have faith. You know, this, to me, this is very applicable as parents. You know, as we see our children growing up in this very ungodly world. This world is bent against God. You know, we have to have faith. We have to call upon the name of the Lord. We have to stand in the gap. For our children. And say, world, you are not going to have my children for lunch. But my children are going to serve God. We have to stand in the gap. We have to exercise faith for those around us. And these men are exercising faith for this paralytic. Just an observation there. But notice the statement in verse 2. I love this statement. Jesus says, take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. And this brings me to my first authority, my first authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is, Jesus has all authority to forgive sin, okay? That may sound 
elementary, fundamental to us people who know the word. But the world needs to know that. The world needs to know that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only one who can forgive sin. Okay, Your sins will not be forgiven by going to church. That's not how it works. Your sins will not be forgiven by partaking of the Lord's Supper and communion. That's not how it works. Your sins will not be forgiven by doing good works and being a good person, as if anything exists like that, because it doesn't. Because the Bible says there's no one good, no, not one. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Your sins will only be forgiven. Take this to the bank. Your sins will only be forgiven by believing and trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Why? Because he alone has all authority. Amen? He alone has all authority. Now, the Pharisees, the text says the scribes, but we're going to see as we continue in our study in the next week, there are Pharisees present there. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they hate this statement. It's driving them bonkers. He is taking the, the religion, the true religion of Yahweh, Lord God Almighty, the God of the Old Testament, which is the God of the New Testament also, they, they, he, Jesus is taking their authority away from them as they held on to Judaism, okay? Jesus is bringing a new covenant, and the Pharisees are upset. They're starting about to blow a gasket. Their, their, their blood pressure is going up. They, they're having to run out and get their blood pressure medication and take it before they he, hear anything else that Jesus has to say. Because look at the next verse. The next verse, verse 3. It says, And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. So this is the scribes now. What do the scribes do? The scribes, uh, in their job in the first century, the scribe was to interpret the, the text, to expound on the text, to be expositors of the scripture. And they're accusing God, the Lord Jesus Christ, of blasphemy. They're murmuring under their breath. Now we know their hearts are filled with evil, and they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Jesus doesn't go seeker-sensitive on them, though. Jesus takes them head-on because he has all authority. Jesus is going to call them out. Look at verse 4. Jesus, knowing their thoughts. Oh, this one's good. Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? This brings me to my second authority of Jesus. We're going to get back to the healing, but this brings me to my second authority, and that is this. Jesus has the authority to see into the heart of every man. That can be encouraging. Yes, he sees my heart. Praise the Lord. And that can be scary. That can be frightening. That should, for some of us, that brings great joy. For some of us, that should bring the fear of God in our lives. Oh my goodness, he can see my thought life. Yes, he can see your thought life. He can see your heart. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must have given account. So here's the Lord Jesus with the Clark Kent. You know who Clark Kent is, right? Superman. He gives, he gives the scribes that Clark Kent view, that look. And he sees directly into their hearts and exposes their darkness. Now, 
We know in Christianity, you know in churches, we like to hammer the Pharisees, right? Too bad there's none around to defend themselves. But, but, but before we hammer the Pharisees and the scribes that are here coming against Jesus, let's remember this. He sees our hearts. He sees your heart. He sees my heart. He sees your motives. He sees my motives. He sees our intentions. Jesus sees our thought life. You know, if God put every single thought that you and I had in our hearts over just the past 24 hours, okay, not two days ago or a week ago, but if God took every single thought Pastor David had in his mind over the past 24 hours and put it up on the screen, I'd be embarrassed. And I think you might be too. If we consider every single thought we've had to see, we would be embarrassed. One minute we're praising God, the next minute we're murdering people with our hearts. We're hating people with our hearts. We're committing adultery in our hearts with lustful thoughts. You know, what do we do with this carnal mind? Does anybody, does anybody, does anybody here struggle in their mind, in their thought life? Can anybody, can anybody relate with Pastor David? That the thought life is, a, is the war, it's the struggle, it's the battle, it's, it's, a, it's, the, it's the place of war. Even for the Christian, even for the born-again Jesus follower, spirit-filled, born-again, loving God, we struggle in our thought life. And God sees it. Yikes! Scoob! What do we do? 2 Corinthians chapter 10 Verse 5, the word says, we, talking about Christians, Paul's talking about Christians, he's talking about believers, we, believers, are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So any evil, humanistic thought, opinion, perspective, viewpoint, that gets lodged into our brain that's not godly and we're fighting against it, what do we do? We cast it out. We cast it out. We take control of our minds and we discipline our minds. How do we discipline our mind? How do we take control? Pastor David, throw me a bone. Help me out. I'm wrestling in my mind. I'm wrestling in my thought life with evil, immoral thoughts and it's getting the best of me. What do I do? I love this Bible verse I'm fixing to share. My wife used to share it with our kids. It seemed like three or four times a week as, as we were homeschooling them. But it's Philippians 4.8. And if you don't have Philippians 4.8 memorized, you should. Philippians 4.8 says this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever, here, here's, our, here's your goal. Here's, here's how to take control and discipline your mind. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You know, this is a struggle. This is a fight. Welcome to the club if you're there. But we got to discipline our minds. We got to be focused. We got to exercise good disciplines of being in the Word. We got to exercise good disciplines of spending time in prayer. We got to exercise good disciplines of being in fellowship and spending time with each other 
and grabbing a cup of coffee with a brother or sister in Christ and sharpening each other. The Bible says, just as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Friends, family, those are tools. Those are tools that God has given you and I to, to grow in our faith. And friends, you can win the battle. Okay? You can win the battle. Don't be defeated. Don't be defeated. Do what the word says. Cast down. We destroy speculations. We, we take every thought captive. We discipline ourselves. And then we control what goes through these two eyes. We, we control. We control what we put our eyes on. And then we control what goes in these ears. That's how we take control of our mind and we don't have evil thoughts. <laughs> because Jesus sees it. He says, verse 4, Jesus knowing their thoughts. <laughs> Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Now, the scribes are getting upset. They popped a couple blood pressure pills, you know, and they're trying to calm down. But Jesus does not let up. He does not let up. Look at verse 5. This is confrontational. Jesus is laying the wood. He's, he's dropping the hammer. Verse 5. Which is easier to say, says Jesus, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now, little note here. A casual read of verses 1 through 5, you would think that the paralytic is the focus of the text, but actually he's not. The focus of the text, as we're going to see in the next verse, is Jesus' authority, Okay? Because of his authority, he's able to heal and supernaturally heal this, this paralytic and bring those nerves and his body back to a complete holy, uh, healing and wholeness. But the ultimate point of the text is Jesus' authority. Take a look at verse 6 with that in mind. But here it is. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, which is just made their blood boil. He said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And verse 7 says, and he got up and went home. So here, Jesus displays his next authority, and that is his authority to heal this man of his disease in the presence of the Pharisees in the presence of the scribes and everyone in Peter's house the great physician is in the house and he brings a supernatural healing to this man and causes him to get up and walk praise the Lord for healing praise the Lord for God's healing touch we believe in healing okay now does God heal everyone I would say no. You know, God heals supernaturally in 2022 and 2023, okay? I, I believe in healing. I hold to healing that God heals. But I have seen situations where God says, you know what? I'm not going to heal you, but my grace is going to be sufficient for you. And in your weakness, in your infirmity, you're going to be a witness for me, okay? So there's times where he doesn't heal, but there's times where he does heal, Okay, and ultimately, can we tell all people they will be healed? Yes, yes, God will heal. If he doesn't heal you in this life, he will heal you when you stand before him in glory. So he heals. 
And he, he, he has all authority to bring healing. Now look at verse 8. Verse 8. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck. The NASB says awestruck. I didn't look what the other translations say, but I'm going to key in on that word awestruck. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. This word awestruck, the Greek word is phobia, which we get phobia from. It means, to be, it means to be fearful and frightened, okay? So this wasn't an awestruck like, oh, wow. This was like, oh, my goodness. This was a, this was a, a holy fear. This was a holy fear. R.C. Sproles calls this situation, he calls this the trauma of holiness. Have you ever experienced the trauma of holiness? I think each and every believer, each and every person should experience the trauma of holiness in their life. It will make you greatly appreciate the gospel. It will greatly make you greatly appreciate what Jesus did for you at the cross. The trauma of holiness is when a person realizes that they are in the presence of a holy God. And that's what took place in this room. They were like, whoa. He is God. He is from God. Every person should experience this trauma. Isaiah, the prophet, experienced this trauma in Isaiah chapter 6. When he went into the temple and he saw the holiness and the purity and the majesty of God. And Isaiah says this. After he saw the holiness and the truth of who God is, Isaiah makes this statement. Woe is me. I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Peter experienced the trauma of holiness in Luke chapter 5. When Jesus told, uh, told Peter to put his fishing nets out into deep water, Peter replied, said this, Lord, we fished all night. We've caught nothing, but I will do what you say. When Peter brought up the net with a miraculous catch of Filled with fish, he said to Jesus, and I'm quoting from Luke chapter 5, Peter says this to Jesus, Go away from me, Jesus, for I am a sinful man. Peter had that revelation that Jesus is who he says he is. That he is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And then Peter understood who he was a sinner in the presence of a holy God, and he asked Jesus. It's found in Luke chapter 5. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You, today, in 2023, you will experience the trauma of holiness when you come face to face with the Lord God Almighty in his holiness, in his power. It will traumatize you and you will understand how holy God is and how unholy you are. I experienced this this trauma of holiness in 2004 when I heard Ray Comfort's teaching called Hell's Best Kept Secret. If you have not listened to Hell's Best Kept Secret, you deserve it for your soul to go onto YouTube or Spotify or whatever and look up Hell's Best Kept Secret by Ray Comfort. Me and my wife sat on the front row at a a middle school auditorium in Athens, Georgia, as Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron presented Hell's Best Kept Secret. And my world got rocked that day. 
I spent a week just weeping over my sin. I spent a week thinking about how far I had fallen and how sinful I was and how holy God was. And this is what it did to me. People don't like to talk about holiness. You know, they think it's a boring subject. They think it's a bland subject. But man, there is nothing more beautiful in this world than talking about the holiness and the purity of God. What it will do is it will humble you. It will humble you when you realize that God is holy. You know what that word holy means? Holy is used two different ways in in the New Testament. Holy, when, when you refer to God being holy, the word holy means separate. It means that God is not like us, okay? I'm going to be talking with the young adults tonight about this. God is not like us. He is holy. He is pure. He is perfect. Now, when holy talks about Christians and believers, the the phrase that's used is set apart, okay? It's set apart. But God, God is holy. Oh, going back to my my point, I spent a week weeping over my sin. I, I spent a week just studying the Ten Commandments. And coming face to face with God's purity and God's holiness. And let me tell you what God's moral law does when you, when you, when you examine your life, examine everything that you are in light of the Ten Commandments. This is what it does. It crushes you. It crushed me. It crushed me. And all I could do was look up at the cross and say, thank you, Lord Jesus. It doesn't make you legalistic. It doesn't, it, it, the, the Galatians 3.24 says, the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It shows us our sinful condition in light of a holy God, and then it makes you love and appreciate the gospel, and it makes you love Jesus. But I had that trauma of holiness in my life. Every Christian should, should have this trauma of holiness, and that's what's taking place in verse 8. For when the crowd saw this, they were, the Greek word is, they were fabio, That means fearful and frightened, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. You know, that's why Jesus died on the cross, because God is holy and we are not. And he died to forgive us of our sins so that you could stand in his perfect righteousness before a just and holy righteous God. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. For the unbeliever, it's going to be the most horrifying experience they've ever known to stand before a righteous and holy God. But for the Christian, it's going to be beautiful and glorious standing in his holiness because we are going to be clothed, you are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. Amen? Okay, verse 9. Verse 9 says, boy, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting on the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. So the tax collectors, they were hated by the Jews. They were hated by Jews, one, because they were crooked. And two, they enforced the hated tax by the Roman Empire. They They wanted the tax collectors to be put away. They didn't like these guys. But so it's interesting that Jesus calls a tax collector. He calls Matthew a sinner, a person that people hated. So that's, that's pretty cool that he's calling the tax, he's not calling the people in the synagogues, he's calling the tax collector. Verse 10, and then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. 
When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Family, take this passage home right here and meditate on it. Meditate on this text right here that we just read, verses 9 through 13, actually. This is our heart behind evangelism, okay? This is our heart behind evangelism. The world is sick. They have a disease. It's called sin. Their hearts are evil, twisted, and corrupted by sin. They are under God's judgment. And you and I are like a doctor. We have the cure. We have the gospel. Without this medicine, they will perish on judgment day. But with this medicine, they will be saved. We have the cure to the disease. And it is the beautiful message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at um, verse 13. Here's the heart, the heart behind the evangelism. Verse 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion. Circle that word. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That word compassion in verse 13. Here Jesus is in likely Matthew's home. He's eating with the tax collectors. And he says, I desire compassion. This is our attitude in sharing the gospel with the world. Don't be a jerk. Don't come across as arrogant. Don't come across as prideful. Speak to the lost firmly, but do it with, what's the word? Compassion. Do it with compassion. Don't water down the message. Don't compromise the message. You can warn them of hell. You can speak of the rewards of heaven. You can explain to them the command to repent. You can explain to them that they need to trust in Christ, but do it compassionately. Do it compassionately. Come across Uh, when you're dealing with someone who's not a Christian, come across as someone who cares. Because we do. We do. I don't care care what your background is. I I don't care what your lifestyle is. I don't care what category of sin that dominates your life. I love you. I want to show compassion. I want to be your friend. I want to help you in life. I want to show you Jesus. So don't come across as religious. Don't come across as a Pharisee. Come across as a sinner saved by grace. You know, you've experienced the compassion and the goodness of God. Let's show the world the goodness and the compassion and grace of God. He's quoting actually here from uh, Hosea chapter 6. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. I, I, I could just see them there, man, the, the Pharisees and the scribes. He's in, the, he's in Matthew's house. He's with these tax collectors. Why ain't he in the synagogue? Hanging out with the Pharisees and hanging out with the religious people. Jesus said, I came to call the sick. I came to call those who need help, who want help. You know, God opposes the prideful but he gives grace to the humble. Verse 14, verses 14 through 16. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? 
And Jesus said to them, the attendant of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. The reason they're not fasting is because Jesus is there with them. You know, fasting is a form of prayer. It's it's talking with God that you cannot see this up in heaven, okay? The disciples didn't need to pray and fast because Jesus was not up there. He was with them. So if they wanted to talk with Jesus, all they had to do was turn around and say, hey, Jesus, and tap him on the shoulder. That was, that's what's being said here. Is Now, once he's crucified, risen, ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, then yes, we pray. We pray and we fast. And yes, fasting is for today, okay? We should discipline ourselves. Take a day, take a meal, whatever. Uh, abstain from eating. And that time that you would spend consuming that cheeseburger and fries, spend that time in prayer. Spend that time with the Lord. Spend time in fasting, okay? And it'll be good for your health too and your cholesterol level. So, so spend time in prayer. Spend time in fasting. Fasting is for today. Fasting is part of the New Testament. We see, that, we see it also taking place in the book of Acts in the New Testament church where they fasted. Verse 16, the final authority. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the worse tear results. Nor do people put new wines into old wineskins. Otherwise, otherwise, the wineskin bursts and the wines pour out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. Here's the final authority that we see in the text this morning from the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is his authority. He's bringing in the new covenant, which will essentially close down the Levitical system of worship under Judaism. The old garment and the old wineskin in this text is the Levitical system of the old covenant. The unshrunk cloth that's referred to here and the fresh wineskin is Jesus and the new covenant. That's the new wineskin. And you can't mix them. Jesus did not come to expand Judaism he came to make a new and better way. You know, what's, what makes the, the new covenant better than the old covenant? What were they under in the old covenant? The law. What are we under in the new covenant? Grace. Grace. Praise the Lord, man. That's awesome. Man, if we were still living under the old covenant, I'd be like, where's your sacrifice at? Where's your bull? Where's your lamb? This place would be a bloody mess. We'd have, to, we'd have to take the carpet out and, and be cleaning every day because everybody would be bringing in their sacrifices. But we don't do that stuff no more. We don't fall under that Levitical system. We are no longer under law, but we are under grace. That is the new covenant. That is the, um, that, that's the, the new and better way. The old covenant sacrifices had to be done yearly, and they only covered sin year after year after year there was a Jewish holiday called Yom Kippur. And that was where they went in and made the yearly sacrifice for sin. It had to be done every year. And from my understanding of it, it was only to atone. It was only to cover sin. Well, in the new covenant today, Jesus' sacrifice was once 
for all. Okay? There are no more sacrifices. He made the ultimate sacrifice at the cross. And here's the cool thing. Jesus, by your faith in Jesus' death on the cross, your sins are not just covered. They are completely removed as far as the east is from the west. That is amazing. In the old covenant, the old system, we see uh, when you study the Holy Spirit in the old covenant versus the new covenant, the Holy Spirit would come in the Old Testament for special events. But then the text would clearly say the Spirit would come, the Spirit would depart for specific missions of kings and priests and different persons in the, in the Old Testament. But in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, the, when, the Holy, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you follow him, you have the Holy Spirit and he is permanently with you. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what makes the new covenant better than the old covenant. It's a complete, it's, it's, it's a complete new system. Now, this passage right here would have, would have had greater impact and, and more understanding being taught during the first century church because they were in the transition going from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But in our life, all we've ever known is, uh, is, is the new covenant of grace because it's been in effect for 2,000 years. So finally, in closing, I want to give to you the greatest Bible verse on Jesus' authority. And we're closing with this verse. It is found in Matthew chapter 28. We, many of you know it by heart. It's called the Great Commission. But Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, you know, with that thought, Jesus' authority, I want to read this passage and give you a couple comments. Um, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus says, all authority has been given to who? Me. In heaven and on earth. Jesus is the highest authority, period. Bar none. Not the Pope. Not the President. Not any religious figure. Not anybody. He is the highest authority. And then he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Jesus is your authority, my authority, to evangelize. The world does not dictate when we open our mouths and when we evangelize. We open it and we evangelize as often as we can, whenever we want to. It's our freedom of speech to evangelize and speak up for the Lord Jesus Christ in this world, to let people know that they need to repent and put their trust in Christ. So he is our authority to open our mouths and to evangelize, or to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is our authority to worship, to worship. Jesus dictates how we worship and how we follow him and how we do baptism and how we do church membership and and how we do our, our, um, our church life. And then he says there in verse 20, Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That phrase, all that I commanded you, what's he talking about here? Jesus is talking about his word, the Bible. Jesus' authority is presented in the pages of Scripture. His authority is given to us in the pages of God's word, the Bible. For a person to reject or not obey his word, they are saying to God, 
that their authority is above his authority. And that is not a good place to be. That's a very foolish place to be. But when you obey and you follow his word, you are ultimately submitting to Jesus' authority. That's how you can know if you are submitting to Jesus' authority. He's laid it out in his word. That is his final authority. And we submit to that. And we surrender to that. And we bow our knees to that. And he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Why? My friend, your Lord, your Savior, your God, Jesus himself has all authority in everything in life. Be blessed. Have a happy 2023 living under the authority of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this study this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you have authority to heal our diseases, to forgive us of sin, Lord, to see into our hearts, God. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Forgive us for looking at you as as just a, a, a person, a human being, but help us to understand your authority, that you are Lord God Almighty. And help each and every one of us, Lord, to surrender to your authority, to submit to your authority. You're an amazing God. And Father, thank you for this message on January 1st, 2023, as we move into this new year under the authority of your lordship, your word, and your truth. Father, thank you. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for your amazing love that you have for us. Help us to walk in that love. Help us to walk in that truth. And help us to walk in the authority that you've given us as Christians and believers in you. For we love you and praise you. For it's in the mighty name of Jesus I pray. Amen.